The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we've thought, prayed, sung about how you have made a people drawn them to you and are still engaged in that work of drawing more and more people to yourself to make a people that then you promise to shepherd all the way home and on through eternity. You're a good and kind and gracious God, a good shepherd to us. That's what we ask you to do now, Lord. Would you shepherd us? Would you take this time here that we have before this, pa- this part of your word, this, this short passage, will you take this time and this passage and use it to grow us up, to teach us how you grow us up, how you don't, how you do, and then to do it, Lord, even in the process of, of looking at it and kind of analyzing it, would you actually carry out the process of maturing us Conform us more to what you always meant us to be, the people made in your image. Lead us into that life. Use use this passage by your spirit, Lord. Open our eyes and change our hearts. Draw us to trust you. Thank you. Thank you for your care for us and for your promise to, to always carry us and to never leave us nor forsake us. We trust ourselves to you now and pray that you'd make your word clear. You build your church and honor your name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. The question of how to approach all the commandments of the Bible is an important one. At the level of theory, or maybe we might say the level of theology, it's often written about and debated and fills up lots of books and lots of classes and seminaries. But most of us, that being said, don't, don't really regularly live at the level of, of theory, and we're not looking for theological formulations, at least not, not officially. We have a much more practical and important and immediate kind of on-the-ground relevant dilemma. The question arises, what do I do when I read a commandment in the Bible or when someone posts, say, the Ten Commandments? How am I supposed to interact with that? How do, how do I receive them? And it, what do I do with them? Commonly, people tend to go one of two ways. Some say, basically, never mind. I, I see that, but it doesn't really matter for me. It's not relevant for me. I don't really think they are from God, or if those statements, those commands are from God, they, they're, they're old, or they're for other people, and they just aren't bothered by them. But others, and this would probably be the larger group, particularly in churchgoers, a larger group of us thinks that there's a pretty clear and obvious and even forceful answer. And you might even be wondering, like, Steve, the dilemma that you just laid out there, I don't really think that's much of a dilemma. You said, we have a dilemma. What do we do with the commandments of the Bible? Well, I think it's pretty clear. When God says, thou shalt not, he means I'm not supposed to. That's what I do with that. I, I read the command, I'm reading my Bible, and 
You say, how do I approach it? Well, I read it, and if it says, don't do that, then I don't, or at least try not to. And do this, I do it, or at least try to do it. And that's what I tell myself. If you're a parent, that's what I tell my kids. Thou shalt not means don't. What's so complicated about that? You said there's a dilemma. I fail to see it. Well, here's the dilemma. That approach to the commands, the commandments of God, if that's all, if that's as far as it goes, that's the same approach, in part, that was in the mind of the false teachers in Ephesus, the certain ones that Paul told Timothy to shut down. So it's possible that that simple, straightforward approach, it says, don't do it, so I don't. It says, don't do it, so at least I try not to, and I tell my kids not to. It's possible that approach is actually false teaching that Paul would want to shut down. Now, they, the, the false teachers there, as we saw last week, they taught a bunch of things. There was probably a, a package of things that were wrong with what they were doing. We don't know. We never get it in detail. Paul doesn't focus, usually doesn't focus on what's wrong. He wants to focus on what's right. So there were a bunch of things there. But part of the problem, evidently, was that they didn't rightly use God's law in a sound way, that is, in a healthy way. They knew what the law was. They knew what God had said. They just didn't know what they were supposed to do with it. So Paul provides correction in our passage today, both revealing how we should use the law and also how we shouldn't. And so maybe as we walk through this, what you'll find is that actually I had a dilemma I didn't realize I had. I, I, had, I had the law, I had the commandments, I had the requirements of God in front of me, and maybe you'll find I was using them in a little bit of an improper way. That's what we're going to look at today, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 6 down to verse 11, but our focus is going to be on, on verses 8 and following. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, these traits mentioned before, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to make two observations, and here's the first. Law is given for pointing out sin and the need for an outside salvation. Law is given for pointing out sin and the need for an outside salvation. In mentioning the law, certainly what Paul has in mind here is the law that God gave to Moses, summarized by the Ten Commandments given on Mount Sinai. 
So that, that's what he has immediately in view. That's what these guys were trying to teach, be teachers of the law. But because all law, all commandments in the Bible flow out of those ten, I can say the law, and then I can also say law. Just to mean in general, the rules, the guidelines, the, the commandments of all the scriptures. So what we're going to see here about the law also applies to law. And law does have a right and lawful use. It's given by God. So it's good. It's given by God with good and useful purpose in mind. Verse 9 says it's a useful tool if we understand this. That the law is not laid down. It's not given focus applied with conviction. It's not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. That's who and what law is for. No parent, for example, walks into a child's room and you, you told the kid to go to his room and clean his room and, and you don't walk in there and lay down the law to that quiet, obedient child sitting in his clean bedroom doing his homework. And you don't even lay down the law if you walk in and, and he's there, he's got his, his dirty laundry and he's kind of folded it up and he's trying to cram it back into his drawer. He's not doing it right, but he's, but he's engaged in it. You lay down the law when you told the kid to go clean his room and do his homework, but he decided to go play a video game instead. Right? That's the one, that, that disobedient one who needs to hear the law and be confronted with it. You, son, are in the wrong, and that's a problem. The disobedient, lawless one, the one who said, I know what the law was, never mind, I'm going to play a video game. That one needs to hear the law, see his failure before it, hear the consequences again, and hopes he's going to take it seriously now, maybe, and, and seek some sort of a remedy. That's Paul's point. That's the proper use of the law. And then he elaborates on that by telling us who the lawless and disobedient are in verses 9 and 10. Who it is that needs to hear the law. And he does this by, by walking through. If you, if you look at it, you'll notice, as we will, that it's actually just skipping across the top of the Ten Commandments. He's going to touch on the Ten Commandments, mentioning in a word or maybe a phrase Sometimes a worst-case scenario word or phrase. He's going to just touch on the Ten Commandments. This is what I mean. This is who it's for, the lawless and the disobedient. That is, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane ones. It's like he's saying the first four commandments are for those breaking the first four commandments. The one not following God, ungodly, but turning away to, to follow after, to worship sin and behaving in an unholy way towards his name and profaning his name and his Sabbath. And then, so on, five and six, fifth and sixth commandments. The one who strikes a father and mother. The one who's a murderer. Verse 10, two examples then of breaking the seventh commandment. One heterosexual, and just to be crystal clear, one homosexual example as well. Sexually immoral people are lawless and disobedient against God. So too are people who practice homosexuality. We'll come back to that in a minute. 
The march through the commandments continues. Enslavers, literally man-stealers. It's interesting to note here, we, we spent time looking at Philemon and talking about slavery and Paul's view on that. Here he's pretty clear. The eighth commandment forbids enslavement. Man-stealing. And liars and perjurers, false witness. The, the law is pointing out sin to such ones. And that includes the sexually immoral and those who practice homosexuality. To say that such ones are lawless and disobedient, that this is sinful and wrong, is a very unpopular statement to make today in the Western world. Right? Sure. Everybody feels that as soon as I read it. I feel it as soon as I read it. So we should stop for a second and talk about that. And to be clear, I, I'm not going to say everything that could be said on this subject of homosexuality. If you want more information on, on that topic, i point you towards a couple of books that we have back out on this side. of the wall. There's a wall of books. There's a couple of titles back there. For those listening, I'll, I'll read the titles. What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? by Kevin DeYoung. The other entitled Same-Sex Attraction and the Church by Ed Shaw. Two books. We've got, we've got them back there, or you could look them up online. Look, look at them if you want more information. But I'm not going to go too far into this topic because, really, look at the passage. It's not a passage about homosexuality. So this isn't a sermon about homosexuality. And we don't have any axe to grind about that topic. We don't. But it is listed here in a list of sins, and that's a hot-button topic for us, so I should say something. The statement there, to be brief, literally says men, but women would be included also. This is just, as with the rest of them, just giving one little example. And he's not talking, Paul writes this, Paul from God, the apostle from God, writes this, not just referring to some sort of situation of abuse or exploitation, maybe a powerful man using a powerless man, maybe, maybe somebody who's young or a minor or a prostitute. It's not about that. The language is really clear and simple. It's the ordinary word used to describe the actions of two consenting adult men. The actions. It's about practicing, not just feelings. And that's an important distinction to note. There is an important distinction between feeling same-sex attracted and acting on that feeling. In much of our culture today, that line is blurred, such that it almost doesn't even exist, and many assumptions are made. The biggest assumption that's out there today being this. If someone says, I feel attracted to people of my same sex. I'm same sex attracted. And someone can say that and then can say it with some conviction. I, really, I am. A lot, for a long period of time. Can say it with some, some conviction. Then it must be okay it must be true, at least for them, and maybe even people will say this too, if it's been there, and it's been there for all, as long as I can remember, it's been there from maybe from my youngest possible memories, then God must have made me that way. 
because I feel it really strongly, consistently over a long period of time. It must be how God made me, and it must be right that I practice it and act on it. That's out there. And in the place of that kind of feeling and that kind of assumption and connection, well, then what comes down here is that Paul's homophobic. That, that's, that is the view, the dominant view in our world today, obviously, right? But actually, that assumption, the assumption that how one feels indicates what is true and right and should be practiced, See, that's the, that's the assumption here. How one feels indicates what's true and right and should be practiced. That assumption is not a correct assumption. And right here, this point, exactly is what shows the usefulness of the law. And why God in his goodness gave us the law. The law tells us what is true and right, maybe confronts us with it, before and whether or not we feel it and internally agree with it and understand it. Even when we feel otherwise and are strongly convinced otherwise and everybody around us feels otherwise, the law tells us, no, actually, this is what's true. And follow this, this is... This point certainly has application to the, the sexual issues discussed here, but it's much broader, and really it's about the whole of the law, all of the commandments. Feeling some attraction to something, even feeling it strongly, even noting that that feeling has been there a long time, as long as one can remember, that's not evidence, actually, that it's a proper feeling that's from God, that's approved of by him. The Bible teaches us that we're all born fallen. And we come out of the womb broken, warped in countless ways, and we don't have any idea what all those warps are, what they look like. And society's opinion around us is no good indicator because all of society may all be warped in different or in the same ways, and we might find ourselves in a situation of the blind leading the blind. How do we know what's good and right I feel it is no indication. So we may be desiring things that we should not desire, but they may feel very normal and very appropriate and, well, attractive to us, tempting to us. That's actually the definition of all temptation. All temptation feels right and good, and attractive, and promising. And it seems like if I go that way, then something positive will happen to me. It's what temptation is. And as one Christian man, the author of one of the books I mentioned, who is a Christian man, a pastor, who himself struggles with same-sex attraction, Christian man, pastor, who struggles with same-sex attraction, what he writes he writes that a more biblically accurate way to describe his experience would be to say that he experiences same-sex temptation. Other people experience other types of sexual temptation. Probably all of us. Or temptation towards, say, great anger or rage. Or the temptation to deceive or to dominate and control, to use people, to enslave them. 
on and on and on, walking through the list. God's word, God's law then, is given to us to clarify, to, to give us a clear and, and accurate perspective. That feeling, that temptation that you have to act on it, to practice it in some way, not just to being tempted, but to act on it, to practice it in some way, that's sin. Contrary to what God says is right, contrary to how God made his world to work, and importantly, importantly, coming from a God who is good, it's also contrary actually to where your good lies. It's contrary to human flourishing. It doesn't prosper you. That's a deception. It may feel very much like appropriate and right, like me, very natural and desirable and beneficial and maybe at least harmless. But right there, that's where the law's usefulness becomes apparent. God gave us the law to clarify, no, in fact, that's not where your good will be found. No, in fact, that is not how I made the world. No. The law laid down. That is not right, and here are the consequences for it. The natural consequences and the consequences from a judge who oversees all of us. The purpose of the law, then, laid down, is to point out what sin is, particularly when we don't know it and don't feel it. That's the law's place, its usefulness for us. And there's no two ways around it. That's, that's serious. This is difficult and hard to discuss. Talk about law. Talk about consequence. Talk about no. You even use the word no. And, and join that into, I mean, we all agree that the rest of this list is wrong. But th- those, two, those two things there, the seventh commandment, join it into discussion of that. This gets us hard. Yeah. But we have to bring alongside of it the fact that we are not wise in ourselves. Only God is. And God tells us this for our good. But He does tell us this, not offer His opinion. They are commandments, laws not to be broken. Old Testament and new. This is in fact part of the sound doctrine that comes from the gospel. Notice at the very end of verse 10, after walking through the commandments, he finishes, and whatever else. This stuff too, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that comes from the gospel. So we must not think this is, that's the God of the Old Testament. That's how the Old Testament works. In the New Testament, it's just everything goes. No, there are commands all over the New Testament as well. This dynamic is at work. Law is good and useful when we use it to point out sin and the need for salvation to come from outside of us, to come to us, to save us from sin. So the first thing we do with this hard word, this law, 
when we meet it, when we bump into it, when, when we see it posted, when we come upon it in our reading, the first thing we do is we hear it. And we let it declare to us, let God declare to us what is true and right and what is to be embraced, or conversely, what is to be avoided and resisted and not acted upon. We sit humble beneath the law and let it point out sin until we agree and are no longer lawless, saying, never mind, I'll do my thing. That's lawlessness. Until the point we're no longer lawless, and resistant or maybe uninformed. We have to go that far with the law of God. But only that far with it. No, no further. Do you go too far with the law? Do you find yourself going that far and then beyond. Maybe it looks like this. We've talked about this in different settings over the past number of months. So maybe you remember this. Sheet of paper with the commandments, the laws written on it. Do you find yourself holding up in front of yourself, there's the written law, there's the requirements, thou shall, thou shall not, etc. There it is. And like my eyes are now, that's my focus. There it is. I see it, and I see it again. I'm, I'm intent. I'm, my, my focus is here. I'm drawn to it. That's truly what God has commanded, written down before. You find that list held up in front of your eyes, or maybe your eyes zeroed in on it. Forcing yourself to focus on it and forcing yourself to apply yourself to following it and, and taking it seriously and obeying it. Or if you're a parent, pulling alongside your kids, here's the list. This is what God requires of us. This is what holiness looks like. This is what righteousness looks like. The Holy One says this is what people should be like. And son, daughter, maybe to yourself, this is what we have to be about. Laying down the law with focus and intent and commitment and resolve. He says, don't do it, so don't. That's the wrong use of the law. Something different. A different tool is required. We've got, to be, we've got to be wise about this. A different tool is required to help us grow and find the life that the law is pointing us towards but cannot deliver, not ever. And that's what leads us to the second point. After using law to reveal sin, sound teachers should sing the gospel to our souls. After using the law to reveal sin, sound teachers should sing the gospel to our souls. 
Anyone who's teaching sound doctrine is going to point out sin, like, like we see there. Verse, verse 10 implies that. It, this, this is in the New Testament as well. Sound doctrine includes this is what's right and true. And we all kind of intuitively know that. We read, you shall not enslave, you shall not lie. We know that applies to us. But something, this is the, the, this is the turn here. This is really important and, and I think beautiful. Because where the heaviness of the first point is, there's beauty in the second point here. Let me come at this by, by looking again at verse 9. The law is not laid down for the just. Well, what is laid down for the just? That's the question we should ask. What is laid down for the just? In fact, who are the just? Fair amount of ink spilled about that question, but I think, I think there's a clear answer to it. Ask, who are the just here? He doesn't mean perfectly just, as in sinless. There isn't anybody. He doesn't mean the person who keeps every single commandment always. There isn't anybody like that. He doesn't mean the perfectly just. And I don't think he means just the spiritually just, as in those justified in Christ, all Christians. Because that would be to say that the commandments, old and new, have nothing to be said, nothing to do with the Christians ever, and that clearly isn't true. Paul commands a church all the time. So I don't think he just means Christians. I think the clue, what the just means here, is to notice the context and the contrast. It's the just versus the lawless, the disobedient. The just person here is the person who says, you're right, I see it, I'm wrong, I don't want any part of that. Right there, when the person says, I see it, you're right, I'm wrong. I don't want any part of that. That's a person who's come under the the command of, humbly, obedient to it, submissive to it. You're right. I'm wrong. I don't want any part of that. And right there, stop preaching the law to that one. Stop preaching, do this, don't do that. Obey, don't, don't disobey. Because that person's saying, I know, I know, I know. I want to. I'm trying. I mean, I... Sure, I'm tempted, and parts of me are still attracted to this sin or that sin. And I know it's sin, but it's wrong, and I don't want to go that path. And false teachers keep laying down the law right there, harder and with more piercing, more, more conviction, beating people up from the pulpit, perhaps, judging others in the congregation in their small group, perhaps, wearing out their kids with demands and criticisms and grounding upon grounding and maybe spanking upon spanking. Maybe wearing out yourself. Holding the list up. You know, the, the list. Not realizing. So seeing the sin, seeing the problem, but not realizing I've just come I've just reached the end of the law's usefulness here. And I need to switch tools. 
They're going to be helpful in producing change and growth into what the law requires. The sound teacher lays down the tool of the law and picks up a different, another, a different tool. No longer using the law, but using the gospel of grace. This is key. This is key. Law doesn't change anybody. Can't. Not in a way that pleases God. The law can make you more neurotic, can make you more judgmental, make you more self-willed, make you more pharisaical, but that's not the kind of change that God wants. His plan, remember this from last week, his stewardship, his business plan is, I'm going to get them to trust me. I'm going to get them to trust me. I'm going to win their hearts and get them to trust me. And from that, they'll grow. Change will happen. They'll mature. They'll, they'll live out faith in love. That's the whole plan. I get them to trust me. And law can't build trust in God. Law can't win the heart. It, it never, never can. You can't actually win anybody's trust by telling them what they're supposed to do. It doesn't incline them to trust you. What, what does build trust? Anywhere. Just think on a human level. What, what builds trust between people on a human level? Something like, if I put it in simple words here, good promise, kindly, faithfully fulfilled. And then another one, another good promise, again fulfilled, and again, and again, and again. That's how trust gets built between two people. That's God's plan. I want to win them over. I want to win them to trust me. And so I'm going to issue to them a good and beneficial promise. Now, in fact, good and beneficial promises and then happily, joyfully, consistently, faithfully fulfill it, fulfill it, fulfill it, fulfill it, fulfill it, keep my word, keep my word. Over years, over a lifetime, over millennia, he says, look at me, make a good promise and keep it. This is, this is how God works. This is, this is what's going on in the gigantic big picture. There's a God of promise who is faithful to fulfill it. And then we tack on top of that, and the promises are really, really good and kindly fulfilled, not grudgingly, not like, ah, okay, I'll come through again. Look at what they've messed up, but I'll fix it. No, kindly and graciously and, and happily fulfilled, as if he actually wants to, because he does. You see a person deal with you like that. If you're a child, you see a parent deal with you like that. What just grows there is confidence, trust. Both in how they work and in who they are. in how they work and in who they are. This is the good news. We see God make promise 
And then you could say that's one gigantic promise that can be parsed out into like a million little promises. We see God work this way. This is, this is what he does. This is his plan. And central to that, of course, he writes here, it, it's consistent with this, this good doctrine, sound doctrine. It is in accordance with the glorious gospel. This is what is, is washed over the just person, the gospel. Because what it is, is the plan promised and faithfully fulfilled. Not completely, but over a long period of time consistently fulfilled. There's good news here. Particularly if you're a person who says, I've heard the law. I get it. Then now get this. I've heard the law and I get it. And now get this. Here's the requirement of law that you don't fulfill. And here's the grace of God that comes in to meet you where your need is. So do this for yourself. Walk back through verses 9 and 10. Where do you see yourself in that? I'm ungodly, unholy, sexually immoral, a liar. Where do you see yourself in that? What should then follow next? What should you see then rise up there? You should see the God of judgment. But you don't. What, what, what comes to you now? What, what should be sung to you like Paul wants to sing it to you? Like any good teacher should sing it to you. What comes to you then is grace, mercy, and peace from God your Savior. Not God your judge. From God your Savior. Grace and mercy and peace from God your Savior. To save you from the condemnation that the law explains, that the law clarifies the wages of sin is death. But here's the gift of God your Savior, life in Christ. You should receive there from the law alienation and judgment and death. But what happens instead is that you receive a Savior who himself bore your alienation, your judgment, and your death. That you might live. This is the gift of God. This is glorious. It is good news. Gospel. What God has done. And as you see that promise fulfilled... He has saved you from your sin. There is testimony offered in that to win your heart over and to incline you to trust him. And I remain your savior. I remain a God of grace and mercy and peace tomorrow and on into the future. Trust me. That does not come from the law. That comes from the gospel. And so we must, in the church and in our families and to ourselves, we've got to sing this glorious gospel, sing it to our own souls. Jesus was offered as the Savior I need from the judgment of the law to bring me to life, period. What do you do with the law? You let it lead you up to see the need, and then you lay it down, and you sing the gospel to yourself. And that's how God actually forgives you of your law-breaking 
and inclines you to follow him. You see his plan of how he works, promising and fulfilling, promising and fulfilling. But better than that, I think, this is, the, I think this is, I think this is better. You see, I said you see two things. You see the pattern and you see the person. If you're a child looking at your parent over years, you see dad, mom, consistently cares for me. But you don't just see the things they're doing to care for you. You're seeing the person. So really... If I was to make a third point out of this, or maybe a sub-point of the second point, we've got the law and the gospel, but neither one of them particularly is our focus. Not the message of command and not the message of release. The focus is actually on... God himself. The God of grace and mercy and peace. This last phrase, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That's worth thinking about for a second. Glorious gospel of the blessed God. Blessed means something like fortunate, happy. I say that carefully like that because I know I've had lots of conversations with some folks about happy because happy can sound like you go to McDonald's and you buy a Happy Meal. That's, that's really thin, the happiness, really thin. <laughs> so we shouldn't talk about God like that, should we? Well, in, in fact, that, that's a fair way to, it is a fair linguistic way to translate the word. But if that doesn't translate in English, let me then fill it in a little bit. What I'm talking about here is the God who is not concerned, not ruffled, not riled, not agitated, not angry, not flustered, not morose, not somber, not angry, not vicious, but in fact looks down at the stewardship of his creation and says, it's all going to plan. Because I'm me. And I'm omnipotent. And I'm omniscient. It's all working out. And I'm glorious, and I'm gracious, and I'm merciful, and I have a people, and I'm, I'm batting a thousand. Every time I swing the bat, it leaves the ballpark. Every time. I love my seat in heaven, reigning. Think of Psalm 2. Looking at the nations raging, he mocks, he scoffs. Come on. Give me your best shot. I got it. This is the God who is blessed. Who's really, 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 really happy. 
You read only the law of God, you think, man, God must be angry. God must be furious. God must be... He does not like sin for sure. And he communicates that to us like, like any parent does. When, when I see Junior playing there, when I see the, the youngster playing, the boy or girl... The video game, I mean, I got to communicate that this is a problem here. He communicates that, but he sees the bigger picture and says, but I also, I, I got that. I got that. I got it all. I am good. And it all works out for good. I win a people to myself, and I make them like I made them to be. I make them into my image bearers. And I delight in my son, and I see the future where we all will gather around the feasting table in the kingdom to come, and we all will together delight. I see it as if it is present, because it is for him. And he's happy. Christian, this is your father. Happy. The blessed God. And this is the one who draws our attention. This is the one into whose presence and into fellowship with whom this glorious gospel has brought us. That's why it's glorious. Not just that the law's demands are satisfied, but that the law's demands are satisfied so that I can commune with the blessed one forever. Starting right now. This must be sung to the souls of the saints to satisfy you supremely. And when that fills you up, when that fills you up, the trinkets of the world have a little pull on you. They don't go away. We're still falling. They, they, they still offer themselves. They still attract. But we'll find in us a new strength to say, no, I'm satisfied somewhere else with someone else. Not just a principle, a person. The blessed God who is Happy, always, who comes to you present with a smile because there is no condemnation on you. You're in Christ. So all that he says to you, always Christian, and if you're not a Christian, trust Jesus, and this can be true for you. All that he says to you, always Christian, is Grace, mercy, peace. That's good news. That's glorious news about the blessed God for you. And that is sound doctrine. Let me pray. Lord, would you help us to commune with you, to know you Would you incline us, by showing us you, would you incline us to trust you? You've made that possible by your gospel, which we need as your law makes clear. Help us to deal well with, to deal appropriately with
the requirements, the commandments that we read, to rest in what you've done and are doing and will do in the gospel, but above it all, to sit at your feet and know you. Move in us, Lord, please. Bless us in this way, please. Build your church. Thank you, Lord. We trust ourselves to you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.